It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Hey guys, I have a podcast that I think you'll really enjoy. Proof, the investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here is releasing its highly anticipated second season where they investigate the murder of 18-year-old Renee Ramos. The first season, which if you haven't listened to yet, you totally should, saw the release of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend, Brian Bowling. And thanks to evidence unearthed by proof, on December 8th, 2022, both Daryl Lee Clark and Kane Joshua Story were finally freed after 25 years behind bars. With that same investigative drive, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, and this time, they are on the streets of Manteca, California, to find out who really killed Renee Ramos. In proof, Murder at the Warehouse, you hear how, on June 5th, 2000, Renee's body was found buried beneath a pile of debris inside a new Home Depot building. And how, despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, her boyfriend, 18-year-old Jake Silva, and 33-year-old Ty Lopez were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. The scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cop of murder. What happens when the police get it wrong? Or, in this particular case... What happens if they got it right, but the appeals court got it wrong? On January 15th, 2002, a man started his second appeal in a case where he claimed he was completely innocent. A claim that divides opinion even today, with many wondering if a guilty man managed to be let out of prison. So if you like your coffee hot, but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. On September 12, 1973, 32-year-old legal secretary Wendy Sowell entered the Bakewell Cemetery in the Peak District in Derbyshire at around 12.50 p.m. No one ever saw her leave the gated area, and when she was eventually found, her body showed signs that, in addition to a severe beating from what appeared to be the handle of a pickaxe, Wendy had been stripped bare and sexually assaulted. Still conscious when help arrived, Wendy attempted to stand, but before she could even do so fully, she fell again and banged her head against a gravestone. Rushed to the Chesterfield Royal Hospital, she succumbed to her injuries and died two days later. The young woman was attacked in broad daylight in an area frequented by passersby. It was believed at the time that she was trying to hitchhike to Catterick, North Yorkshire, to pick up her boyfriend's car when she was hit over the head several times by that pickaxe. Immediately, the location of her attack lent to a suspect that, 
as far as everyone was concerned, must have been the one responsible. 17-year-old cemetery groundskeeper Stephen Downing, who found Wendy after the attack, was questioned and when he told police that he wanted to wash the blood off of his hands, he was promptly arrested and brought into custody. Though they believed the blood came from the attack itself, Stephen said that when he found Wendy lying on the ground, covered in blood, he leaned down to check on her and, when he did, she shook her head and sent blood flying onto his clothing and hands. Though they believed him capable of the brutal attack and assault, Stephen was a young teen who had a reading age of just 11 years old, had learning difficulties, never had a girlfriend, and said he was still a virgin. Despite all of this, the police questioned the boy for nine hours without a solicitor present. Though he was allowed to see his parents, they agreed that he did not need to speak with a lawyer at that point. And in the end, he confessed to the attack and said that he was the one responsible. At this point, Lindsay's soul was still alive, so he was only charged with assault. With the lesser charge, the young man willingly signed his confession, and only after the ink dried was he informed that the young woman had, in fact, passed away. Therefore, his confession to assault was now a confession to murder. Though he retracted his confession, claiming he was at home during the attack, there was no evidence to support his claims, and he was charged with the murder. Stephen Downing was brought to trial in February of 1974, and after pleading not guilty to the murder, he admitted to sexually assaulting Wendy as she lay in the cemetery. However, a forensic scientist, Norman Lee, took the stand and said that the only way the blood could have been present where it was on Stephen's clothing was if he was responsible for the actual beating, and claimed that it was a, quote, textbook example of what might be expected on the clothing of the assailant. Still claiming his innocence, Stephen said that he had used the pickaxe that day to break up some firewood. And though there was no official transcript for the trial, it is known that the judge, in summing up the evidence, pointed to the fact that he had access to the murder weapon and admitted to indecently assaulting the young woman as she laid injured on the ground. Though he said he only confessed because, at the time, he thought that Wendy was only seriously injured, but still alive, Stephen Downing, by unanimous verdict, and after just one hour of deliberation, was found guilty of murder and sentenced to be indefinitely detained at Her Majesty's pleasure with a minimum of 17 years. And because he refused to admit his guilt, there was no chance for parole, and he was classified as, quote, in denial of murder. Though many felt as though the killer was now serving out justice, things changed a little bit when a witness came forward who said that she saw Stephen Downing leaving the cemetery at the same time they saw Wendy, alive and well, walking around the area. Based on this new piece of evidence, Stephen applied for leave to appeal, and on October 25, 1974, the Court of Appeals heard the grounds for the appeal. Unfortunately, they deemed the witness unreliable due to some fully grown trees that would have obstructed her line of sight and the fact that she only came forward months after the conviction and after being visited by the police before and claiming she saw nothing. The appeal was rejected, and as far as most were concerned, Stephen Downing was a guilty man. The case slipped into obscurity for many years. 
All the while, Stephen continued to maintain his innocence, and his family attempted to garner enough support to win a new trial. Then in 1994, they wrote to a local newspaper, the Matlock Mercury, and caught the attention of the editor, Don Hale, who decided that he was going to help the Downing family in their quest to bring Stephen home. His help ended up being paramount to the shift in the case, and after finding the murder weapon on display at the Derby Museum, Don organized his own modern forensic examination, which shockingly found that Stephen's fingerprints were not on the handle. Though there was a palm print of an unidentified person, the print could have come from any point in time and possibly from being contaminated over the years when not properly stored over the last handful of decades. Between this new shocking piece of evidence, or lack thereof, and Stevens' continued claims of innocence, the case was referred to the Criminal Case Review Commission in 1997. And finally, after 27 years behind bars, Stephen Downing was released from prison on appeal in 2001. Hailed by the BBC as a, quote, triumph for campaigning journalism and an end to one of the worst miscarriages of justice in English legal history, Stephen reportedly received celebrity treatment after his release, was employed as a trainee chef in a Bakewell restaurant, and received £750,000 in compensation. Unwilling to give up the fight for his complete innocence, on January 15, 2002, a second appeal was held, and this time, the Court of Appeals accepted many of the reasons put forth by Don Hale, which he claimed showed that the conviction was unsafe and that the confession evidence was unreliable. Claiming that during the hours of questioning, Stephen was shook, had his hair pulled to keep him awake, and was never once formally cautioned that what he was saying could be used against him, all without a solicitor, the Crown agreed with the defense's argument that, in addition to all of this, the blood spatter patterns that allegedly pointed to his guilt were questionable at best. Though there was still some debate over the splatter, the question for the Court of Appeals was not if Stephen Downing was guilty, but if he received a fair trial back in 1974. Deciding that he did not, the conviction was quashed in the case that, many claim, was the longest miscarriage of justice in British legal history. Following the overturning of his conviction, the Derbyshire police reopened the investigation and dubbed it Operation Noble. Interviewing 1,600 witnesses and spending about £500,000, investigators came up with a total of 22 other possible suspects, many of whom had been suggested by Don Hale and included Stephen's own father, who, at the time of the murder, had been driving the bus that dropped Wendy Soul off near her job the morning of the assault. All of these alternative suspects were eventually cleared, and Stephen Downing remained the only suspect that they could not eliminate. He, during the reinvestigation, refused to come in for questioning, and some started to wonder if he was, indeed, guilty after all. According to a woman who used to be in a relationship with Stephen, she allegedly taped a confession he made during an argument, and he also, allegedly, confessed to his own father on two occasions after his release. Releasing their findings, Stephen issued a formal complaint against the police, stating, quote, they said that they would do a thorough investigation into the matter. They have not done. 
But when an independent committee was set up to oversee the investigation, they determined that the inquiry was done fairly and that they were satisfied with the integrity of the entire investigation. The case was declared closed, and due to double jeopardy, their one and only suspect, Stephen Downing, could not be recharged with the murder. They claimed that, had the law been different, they would have arrested him again and sent him to trial for Wendy Sowell's murder. After the inquiry, and with much of the public doubting Stephen's innocence, the book written by Don Hale, Town Without Pity, came under considerable criticism and was accused of inaccuracy. Claiming he attributed comments to people who he never spoke to, the book speculated that Stephen was out to meet an illicit boyfriend at the time of the assault, which many claimed was incorrect, and though he claimed that Wendy's bag was missing from the scene, which Don said was of significance to the case, it was reportedly returned to her loved ones shortly after the murder and was never once considered missing. His claims were allegedly so false that there were arguments over whether he would be charged for its contents. But in 2003, it was announced that no charges would be filed against Don Hale. In March of 2004, Stephen Downing was arrested for allegations of intimidation after apparently speaking with a female witness from his case. This came just four days before the screening of a BBC dramatization in which they concluded that Stephen may have, in fact, killed Wendy Sowell. Then in 2005 came a change in the double jeopardy law that allowed those who had been previously acquitted of murder to be retried if new and compelling evidence was found. This led police to apply to the CPS to charge Stephen again, but in the end, they decided that, though he was their only suspect, the evidence was not compelling enough for a retrial. However, in October of 2008, Stephen was arrested, though not in relation to Wendy's murder. He was convicted of wearing police clothing in public and was fined for the offense. The last real update in the case came in January of 2014, when Chris Clark, a former detective investigating the 16 unsolved murders that could possibly be connected to the infamous Yorkshire Ripper, claimed that he found a pathology report that was buried by the police within days of Wendy's attack that he said would have completely contradicted Stephen's confession, exonerated him, and prevented any miscarriage of justice. Saying that Wendy had bruising on her neck, meaning she was likely strangled, the Derbyshire police dismissed the claims and remained steadfast in their investigation. Claiming there was no evidence connecting her murder to the Yorkshire Ripper, there is still argument back and forth on whether or not this is true. However, in the eyes of investigators, Stephen Downing remains the prime and only suspect in Wendy Sowell's case. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to A Terrible Thing Happened on January 16th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there is always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime-obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.